I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, hello, everybody. Madigan here. How is everybody doing? I'm already hot, hot as hell today. We are finally reaching the hottest points of our summer here in Los Angeles. We are going to be hitting a bit of a heat wave this weekend. So I have my fan on in the room very, very low and as far away from the microphone as possible. So I'm hoping that you can't pick up any of that sound. But I'm afraid that if I don't have any fan on in here, I just might pass out in the middle of recording this episode. And we don't want that, do we? So hopefully everything's checking out and we're good. Before I get into week three of Madigan's birthday month extravaganza on this show, of course I gotta fill you in on a few things. First, of course, the Angry Feminist Book Club on Patreon is where it's at. If you haven't joined already, now is certainly the time. There are four books that I have covered on the Patreon, and each of those has at least two episodes covering each book. Later on this week, you will be getting a new episode covering The Wizard of Oz because, of course, I said this on a recent episode as well, but I've really been enjoying doing a children's book, something more lighthearted because all of the books that I've done so far for the book club have been pretty serious or have at least had a lot of like really serious themes and 
situations happen in them, a lot of sexual assaults in a lot of these books. And I'm like, you know what? We need something that's going to be a bit of a palate cleanser, something a little bit more fun, but that still surprisingly has a lot of feminist ties to it. And you know I could talk all day and all night about The Wizard of Oz. So it's going to be a really, really fun Patreon episode. You definitely want to join the Angry Feminist Book Club in time to hear me talk about all of that. And then on Patreon, there is also another level, which is the Feminist Faves level, which is $8 a month, where you can be part of the Angry Feminist Book Club, but you'll also get all of these episodes ad-free, and I've been putting them up a little bit early as well. So if you're a little bit impatient and you want to listen to the mini episodes on a Thursday evening or you want to listen to the full episodes on a Sunday night, Patreon is where it's at, and you will be able to listen to those a little bit earlier as well, and you won't have any interruptions in the middle, which that's why I joined Patreon, because I don't want to listen to podcast ads all the time. I just want to hear the episode, so if if you all are like me, that's why I did that. But I also really want to know more about what you want to see or hear on Patreon, so if you have any suggestions, you can either leave a comment on the Patreon page. You can email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or you can DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. To join Patreon, go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or go to the link in the show notes wherever you're listening. It'll take you there. It is a great, great way to be able to support me and this show. And it's also a wonderful way for you to get a little bit more Madigan content in your life. Who doesn't want this? probably a lot of people. Anyways, I could not be more excited to be discussing this week's topic. And it's so interesting because I was like, this is so random. This doesn't apply really to the theme of the show. Like it's not really feminist. I guess there's like, you know, child labor laws that we're discussing and things like that. But it isn't something that you would necessarily think that like a feminist podcast would be discussing. But especially living in LA, strikes have been a big, big part of my life for the last like, I don't know, a little over a month or so. About a month ago, the writers that are part of the Writers Guild of America, which is all of like the screenwriters, the people that write all of your TV shows, movies, so on and so forth, they went on strike for not being paid enough for their work. And now the SAG actors, which is the Screen Actors Guild, have also decided to go on strike. And it's interesting because I've been seeing a lot of people point out that, you know, these are very privileged people that are striking, yada, yada, yada. And yeah, there are a lot of celebrities that are supporting this cause, but the majority of the people that work in this town, in this industry, are not the celebrities. They're not the CEOs. They're not the people that are raking in tons and tons of dollars on all of these things. And also streaming has really fucked over a lot of performers, whether it be the musicians who make music for movies, whether it be the actors, whether it be the writers, these people that are actually doing the work. Oh my God, not even to mention the crew members, the people that are kind of the unsung heroes or maybe not like the biggest celebrities in the world sometimes still have to work other jobs while they're also working on a TV show that you watch every week. And I just don't think that that's discussed enough. Like most of my friends who are actors are working actors. They're starving artists. They're not these like super wealthy people. So the fact that 
they are not receiving, you know, adequate health insurance, adequate pay, adequate support. It's super fucked up. And I think that talking about, you know, joining unions and striking and how that can truly change not only public's perception of things, but also truly make change when it comes to the livelihoods of people in the United States. And so it's funny that, you know, as I was going through this episode, I'm like, wow, this is actually really applicable to what's going on in the United States right now with a lot of these strikes that are going on. I'm also very excited because this has been one of my favorite movies since I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. When I was a kid, my best friend Ivory and I spent every waking moment together pretty much. She was pretty much raised as like my sister and we were at her cabin for the weekend with her family and I really wanted to watch A Walk to Remember. I was obsessed with that movie at the time, loved Good Cry and Ivory and her like boy cousins all really wanted to watch the Newsies and I was like, that looks really stupid. I don't want to watch that. Well, we had to compromise. We watched A Walk to Remember either the night before or the night after. And then the other night we watched the Newsies. And within 10 minutes, I was completely enamored and obsessed. And I actually ended up knowing one of the songs. My mom got me this cassette tape when I was a kid called like Kids on Broadway or Broadway Kids or something. And it was kids singing Broadway classics. And one of them was King of New York. And I was obsessed with that cassette and that song on the cassette. So I was like, oh, I actually like kind of know some of the music already, which got me even more into it. And ever since then, it became like a staple in my house. I skated to music from the Newsies, I think, when I was, yeah, I was like 11 years old. It was my first date competition. I skated to my little Newsies number. And then as an adult, I don't really know how this even started, but when I was taking care of tea, I think it was when the Newsies on Disney Plus, the one that they did the like theatrical recording of and put up on Disney Plus, T started getting really into that and started like wanting to buy newsboy hats and he would have me like roll up just like print her paper and put rubber bands around them to pretend they were newspapers and he would dance around and I took him to go see a production of the Newsies and just like some little theater a couple hours away in some random area of Southern California and he was just so into it and it like reignited my love for the film and the music and now the theatrical production I'm just such a big fan, and I'm so excited to get into all of this today. I'm done rambling. Let's get into the prologue. In 1899, 1899, the streets of New York City echoed with the voices of news. Peddling the newspapers of Joseph Pulitzer, William Randolph Hearst, and other giants of the newspaper world. On every corner, you saw him carrying the banner. Bringing you the news for a penny a paper. Poor orphans and runaways, the Newsies were a ragged army without a leader. Until one day, all that changed. Over the two weeks that this strike would be occurring, boys in all five boroughs and in cities and towns throughout the Northeast refused to sell William Randolph Hearst's Evening Journal and Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, the two largest circulation newspapers in the nation. 
But before we get into the strike, let's go back and talk a little bit about child labor at the time. According to the 1900 census, which is the year after these events occur, of the children aged 10 to 15, 18% were employed, which is roughly 1,264,000 boys and 486,000 girls. Most worked on family farms, but as more and more industries were being created during the Industrial Revolution, more workers were needed. Children were super popular in textile mills as their small statures were useful for fixing machinery and squeezing into small spaces. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't trust any child I know to fix small machinery and squeeze into a small space for something like relatively important, like at a job, but that's just me. Laborers worked in incredibly dangerous conditions, adults and children, and stories of disasters happening on the job began to circulate. And now I just want to give you a few examples that I read of some of the incidents that could occur during these really dangerous working conditions for these kids. In one article that I read, they mentioned a woman whose hair had been caught in machinery and it pulled part of her scalp off with it, which is exactly what happens in one of my favorite childhood books. I know you all know I'm morbid. You know, I've talked about the Dear America books a bunch on this show. There's one about this Irish immigrant girl who sees this happening to a woman that she's working with in a textile mill and it's the so far from home book scarred me for life there were also stories of children who were forced to stay home from school in order to sell spools of thread to help support their families at the same time in new york city newspapers were following stories of forming unions to fight back against the hazardous working conditions and fair pay The first newsboys came about in 1833 in the middle of the Industrial Revolution in the United States. And before that, in the early 19th century, this was just funny to me, they would sometimes use carrier pigeons to deliver newspapers. Otherwise, you would just have to like go to the newsstand to pick it up or there would be like a subscription service. Around the same time as the newsboys strike, which I do touch on a little bit later in the notes, there was also a strike with like the trolley drivers and things like that that was going on. And the newsies were very inspired by the grown up counterparts, I guess, of these protests. Papers such as The Sun, Herald and World all published these stories in their daily copies. And each day it was the newsboys that shouted the headlines to sell them. All the while, they were probably ingesting a lot of information about unions and their rights along the way. Benjamin Franklin is usually referred to as the first American newsboy as he helped deliver his brother's paper, the New England Current, in 1721, but this seemed to be a singular effort and the occupation didn't catch on until 1833, and that was when the Sun started hiring vendors in New York City to peddle their papers. Like I mentioned, before there were newsboys, people would kind of just have to like go to the newsstands and pick them up, so on and so forth. But this man, Benjamin Day, decided that he would hire people to actually go out and deliver these papers. So he decided to put a help wanted sign up in front of the newspaper shop that read, A number of steady men can find employment by vending this paper. A liberal discount is allowed to those who buy and sell again. Of course, Day had expected adults looking for work to show up and was surprised to see a bunch of kids and teenagers looking to make money. Their first hire was a 10-year-old Irish immigrant boy by the name of Bernard Flaherty, who turned out to be quite a talented hawker. Hawker, by the way, is a term for a newsboy who literally hawks papers, throws them, gives them away, whatever. 
Bernard sounds like the original Jack Kelly from the movie. He would shout out the most salacious parts of a story to get them sold, usually putting the words in a rhythmic or poetic pattern to grab people's attention, like double distilled villainy, cursed effects of drunkenness, awful occurrence, infamous affair. The newsboys working for The Sun could either hawk on the streets or they could establish subscription routes, and many did both. These kids were incredibly hardworking, and some of them were as young as six years old. And they would sell these papers from dusk until dawn, sometimes selling two editions of the papers per day. And now while they were delivering The Sun's papers, they weren't actually employed by the paper, but rather they purchased their papers from wholesalers in packs of 100 and peddled them as independent agents. But the caveat here is that they couldn't return any papers that they didn't sell for a refund, which left many kids in the hole at the end of a slow news day. This sounds like the 1899 version of an MLM. So the Newsies had to get a bit creative to sell their papers sometimes. Much like the examples I gave with Bernard, Newsies had many different tactics for getting all of their papers sold. Some would embellish the headlines to lure in buyers, while other Newsies may cheat out their customer by playing on their sympathy or by asking for more money than the paper is actually worth. Here's a line from the movie musical that I think sums it up pretty well. And as far as playing on sympathies go, here's another line. It takes a smile as sweet as butter. The kind that ladies can't resist. It takes an orphan with a stutter. Who ain't afraid to use his fist. The boys also needed some sort of protection, and there was a man by the name of Father Drumgool, whose full name is John Christopher Drumgool, an Irish immigrant who worked as a church janitor most of his life before becoming a priest. In 1871, he began ministering to newsboys and took over the St. Vincent's Newsboys Home at 83 Warren Street in Brooklyn. This makes me think of the character in the Newsies who's, you know, waking all the kids up in the beginning of the movie to get them started for their day. I wonder if he's a little bit inspired by this type of character. At St. Vincent's, they cared for and sheltered many of the thousands of unhoused and desperately poor Newsies. Many of these kids had families who were too poor to keep them, or they were true orphans. Drumgool is considered a hero of the Newsboys and an unofficial patron saint of the unhoused, orphaned, and less fortunate, though the Catholic Church has considered him for true sainthood, which is pretty cool. In the movie, it depicts most of the Newsies as being orphans and runaways, and many of them were. Before the emergence of the Spanish-American War in 1898, many of the newsboys could be described as street-hardened ragamuffins, according to one New York Times article. Jacob Reese, a chronicler of the New York City lower class, described them as orphans and runaways who lived rough, played craps, and slept with at least one eye open and every sense alert to the approach of danger. The newsboys were also pretty popular among the cities. Do-gooders established more housing for the boys in need of a place to sleep. The Parker Brother Gaming Company came out with a newsboy game, and there was even a newsboy prayer. Now I lays me down to sleep. I praise de Lord, me soul to keep. And if de cop should find me den, I pray he'll leave me be. Amen. Are you all loving my super terrible New York accent as much as I am? I'm having a blast. 
Once the war began to affect a larger population, many school children from low-income families had to begin working in order to help support their family. Many of the kids came from immigrant families as well who struggled to find work. In David Nassau's 1985 book, Children of the City, At Work and at Play, it discusses how publishers needed a reliable workforce to push their newspapers for a few hours each afternoon. And the newsboys were perfect. Carrie and the Banna. Carrie and the Banna through it all. A At the turn of the century, the newsboys were essential to the distribution of newspapers. At the time, the morning paper was often delivered directly to those who had subscribed for the paper, much like it is now, but for the afternoon paper, it was up to the newsies to carry the banner. The prices of the papers also changed at the start of the Spanish-American War, so I did a little math here, and before the Spanish-American War, the newsies would buy 100 papers for 50 cents and then sell them at, quote, a penny a pape. They typically earned about 30 cents per day, only receiving 60% back of what they gave at the beginning of the day. In today money, that would be equivalent to about $11 a day. When the Spanish-American War was raging on in 1898, paper sales rose and newspapers raised their cost from 50 cents to 60 cents per 100 papers. But at first, the newsies didn't really mind this because they were also selling papes like hotcakes. And the war was great fodder for good headlines. The more dramatic the headline, the worse the news, the better the papers sold. But when the war retreated, the prices of the world and journal didn't return to its pre-war standing, but remained at 60 cents per 100 papers, while the rest of the newspapers went back to their pre-war prices. Plus, with the lack of juicy stories and headlines to push, the newsies business was declining, and it was becoming more and more difficult to afford the papers to sell. On top of growing frustrations involving the poverty they were experiencing, the strike also coincided with a national strike wave, a local heat wave, and a militant protest by streetcar motormen in Brooklyn and Manhattan that kept police busy. So this was the other protest that I mentioned that kind of inspired them. In some articles, they say trolleymen, and some they say streetcar motormen were also protesting for fair wages. On July 18, 1899, a group of newsboys in Long Island City turned over a distribution wagon for the New York Journal and declared a strike against the papers of Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Pulitzer was the owner of the world and Hearst of the Journal. They think we're nothing. Are we nothing? They stated that they would remain on strike until they rolled their prices back down to 50 cents per hundred papers. The world circulation manager responded by saying, go ahead and strike. The newsboys of Manhattan and Brooklyn followed suit the next day. The kids were told to spread the word. You don't see no more world or journal or you get your face punched in, you see? Eventually, the newsies from Wall Street to Harlem, Brooklyn to the Bronx, and the Staten Island towns of Clifton, Stapleton, and Tompkinville all got involved, and it eventually spread further into Westchester counties in areas such as Yonkers, Mount Vernon, New Rochelle, Mamaroneck, and White Plains. Then in upstate New York, they started the strikes going in Troy, Saratoga, and in Rochester, so this shit was spreading like wildfire. And this was a strange union. It wasn't like these professional working gentlemen. It was made up of mostly teenage boys. The face of the union has long been believed to be a kid named 
kid blank, real name Louis Belletti, who was in his late teens, who had red hair and wore an eye patch. Hence the nickname blank. His right-hand man was David Simmons, who was a little bit older than the rest. He was 21 years old, who would serve as the president of the union. I am going to be referring to him as Davey because that's the name of the sidekick in the movie The Newsies. And there were a few young women who also made their presence known in the union. And one of them that really made a splash was Annie Kelly, who was described by The Sun as the brick of all women and the most faithful of the strikers. Another paper writes that the boys regard her almost as a patron saint. It's so sweet. In the early days of the strike, Kid Blank was asked about women who didn't join the strike, and he said, Anyway, we've got Annie with us. You can bet there ain't no royals or joinals under her skirts. <laughs> Other women involved in the strike were Hannah Clef and Mrs. Cochran. While Jack Kelly may not have been the real leader of the Newsies, there has been mention of a Jack Sullivan in just one newspaper from the time. And it's interesting because Sullivan in the movie is Jack Kelly's real last name. His real name is Francis Sullivan. So I think it's interesting that there was a true Jack Sullivan that was found in the papers. And though they say he wasn't a leader, he is said to have spoken in front of crowds and ignited the Newsies in a strike, which sounds a lot like a leader to me. And there were many, many leaders that were a part of this group because there were so many different boroughs and districts and areas that were covering this strike. So let's get into some of our major players, some of the main strikers involved. So I already started talking a little bit about Kid Blank whose real name is Louis Belletti, but he was also referred to as Blind Diamond, Muggsy McGee, and Red Blank. And he was the chief organizer, and he is described as being an incredibly charismatic leader. There's tons of newspaper articles out there that have transcribed a lot of his speeches. He spoke a lot to reporters. He was just like very in-your-face, talked a lot. And especially with the bright red hair and the eye patch, I'm sure he was quite a character. Dave Simmons, who was known as a boy prize fighter, was named the president, and he had been selling papers since he was eight years old. So he is like an old veteran here to help out the younger newsies, you know, probably wrangle them in a little bit, maybe. I don't know. Then there's Racetrack Higgins, who's also portrayed in the movie. His real name is Ed, and he was also known for being a charismatic speaker, with several papers mentioning his use of humor in his speeches. Brooklyn Life referred to him as a born leader of boys, and he may yet be of men. I also read in another article from the time that he was so good at speaking to a crowd that if he was an adult, they think that he should have run for like political office or something like that. And I was like, that is so funny. And the character racetrack in the movie is totally like that, too. Like, wise cracking guy, you know, always at the racetracks, betting on the money, you know, that kind of wise guy feel a little bit. Then there's Morris Cohen, and little is known about him, but his name is known due to a memo from Pulitzer's business manager naming him as the boy who started the strike in New York City. 
All right, now we're going to get into some really fantastic names, though there is little known about most of these kids. There's Henry Major Butts Butler, <laughs> Little Mikey, who was their orator, Jim Gaiety, Young Monix, Barney Peanuts, and Crutch Morris. So Crutch Morris is known to the Newsies fandom as Crutchy in the movie and in the theatrical production. Some called him One Leg Morris and was also looked at as a leader and took the role of secretary for the committee. I read on a Tumblr page that people were kind of upset that they didn't make movie Crutchy into the secretary because they thought that would have been really great representation for differently abled people. And I agree. It wasn't uncommon to see newsboys on crutches or even having lost a limb, as most of the time they would jump very dangerously on and off trolley cars while holding hundreds of papers in their arms. So accidents, unfortunately, were quite common. Then there was Crazy Arborn, who wasn't actually a newsboy at all, but sold pretzels and just kind of like tagged along. He's mentioned in a few articles as well, and he seems like a character. Then there's Skabooch or Skabooch. There is some argument over the uh, pronunciation of his name. And last but not least, probably the most normal name, Abe Newman. There would eventually be some changes and fractures for the group along the way, but this was the initial crew. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk a little bit more about Racetrack Higgins because he is one that is a little bit more known in Newsies lore. And he was a pretty prominent member of the group as well as, like I said, a prominent character in the movie. He lived in Brooklyn and was incredibly loyal to the strike. And in the movie, he's one of the Manhattan Newsies. And it seems like they probably inspired two characters from the real Racetrack 
Because like I said, there's the wisecracking newsie named Racetrack who sells papers in Manhattan. But it seems like they also may have inspired Spot Conlin's character after Racetrack as well, since they were both leaders for Brooklyn. But what's even more interesting is that there is a Spot Conlin mentioned in the newspaper archives who is called the Grandmaster Workboy of Brooklyn. So that could have easily been the inspiration as well. I just find it so fascinating being such a big fan of the movie and kind of finding out the inspiration behind these characters, never having known that they were really based on real people. He earned his nickname by spending a lot of time at the racetracks, and people who have investigated the real Newsies suggest that he was between the ages of 16 and 22, but that's only because that was a common age for strikers. That really doesn't tell us anything. There isn't much known about him, not even his real last name, but he was once quoted saying of himself, Why, here's my trousers, fringed like lambikins, and weighting four pounds less than a straw hat. Look at my shoes, full of holes as a sand sieve. Also, I guess lambrequins are laced-edged curtains, so he's saying, my pants are so tattered, look at my shoes, full of holes, you know, he's like, I'm just a, I'm just a poor fella, you know. On July 21st, Don Seitz, who is the world's managing editor, sent a memo to Pulitzer about the strike, saying, had some trouble today through the strike on the part of the newsboys, but he assured his boss that the strike would be sporadic and that the situation was well in hand. He couldn't be more wrong, as the tactics in the early days of striking were completely unhinged. On July 22nd, 100 newsies descended on Newspaper Row, where the papers were being distributed, and threatened the world and the journal with clubs. The cops disbanded the event, but the next day, 500 newsies joined around Columbus Circle, throwing fruit and stealing papers out of wagons. That day, Seitz wrote another memo to Pulitzer stating, The newsboy strike has grown into a menacing affair. It is proving a serious problem. Practically all the boys in New York and adjacent towns have quit selling. Some scabs, or newsies that have betrayed the strike, would wield table legs and carried around revolvers for protection from the strikers if they were carrying copies of The World or The Journal. The strikers themselves were armed with horseshoes, baseball bats, barrel staves, and wheel pokes. If any of the strikers saw a man or boy selling the two boycotted papers, they were mobbed by a group of them, beaten, and his papers were destroyed. In one article from August 13, 1899 in the New York Times, with the headline being, Newsboys on Strike, Many Fights and Two Arrests by the Police. This is what it says. For an hour or two, they made things very lively in Park Row, parading the street and stirring up a great commotion. Some of the boys afterward went to the offices of the newspapers and found that the report of an advance in the price was unfounded, so far as they were concerned. They bought a stock of papers and started out only to be set upon by the crowd, which quickly confiscated the papers. A number of fights followed, and some of the boys were very roughly handled. Two of the young rioters were arrested and taken to the Tombs Police Court. They were Arthur Luft, aged 11, a young Pole living at 154 Norfolk Street, and Joseph Baldi, an Italian of the same age, of 14 Baxter Street. Judge Hogan committed them to city prison. Harsh. Just days into the strike on July 24th, panic began to set in with the news moguls. Seats wrote another memo that day stating, The advertisers have abandoned the papers and the sale has been cut down fully two-fifths. It is really a very extraordinary demonstration. The paper owners began offering grown men the job of selling papers and even offered police protection for them so they could still get their papers sold. 
but even they were no match for the Newsies. They would find ways to distract the officers so they could get the scabs anyways. Women and girls who sold the boycotted papers fared a bit better. As Kid Blink said it, a feller can't soak a lady. And the strike just kept growing and growing, with leaders popping up for each district in New York City, and each area also had its own captain and executive committees. Three delegates from each district will compose the Central Committee, to be known as the Grand Union, which will be presided over by a president. They also state in the article of plans to grow the movement outside of New York, and there was mention of newsboys in New York, New Jersey, beginning to form together. The Newsies quickly gathered the support of the public around them and even had many adults in their corners. On July 25, 1899, the Newsboys held a citywide rally at Irving Hall, or Irving Place Theater, located in Union Square, Manhattan, sponsored by State Senator Timothy D. Sullivan. So they even had some like prominent politicians that were on their side. Around 5,000 kids showed up, and at the time, the world circulation had dropped from 360,000 to 125,000 already. Many local businessmen and politicians were also in attendance and addressed the crowd and spoke in support of the boys in the strike. When the grown-ups were done talking, Davy got up and read a list of resolutions saying the strike was to stand until the papers reduced their prices. Davy also pled with the crowd to adopt nonviolent methods of resistance. Annie Kelly was one of three women who attended the rally, with the other two being reporters. And she hadn't planned on saying anything at the rally, but when the boys realized she was there, they all began cheering for her to speak, and they refused to stop until she got up to say a few words. This is what she said. All I can say, boys, is to stick together and we'll win. That's all I've got to say to you. Once they were done, Kid Blank stood up to say his part. Friends and fellow workers, this is the time which tries the hearts of men. This is the time when we've got to stick together like glue. But there's one thing I want to say before I goes any further. I don't believe in getting no fella's papers from him and tearing them up. I know I done it. You bet you did, you bet you did. But I'm sorry for it. Now there ain't nothing in that. We know what we wants and we'll get it, even if we is blind. Ain't that ten cents worth as much to us as it is to hoist and pull it, sir, who are millionaires? Well, I guess it is. If they can't spare it, how can we? Soak em blink, soak em blink. Soak nothing. I'm telling the truth. I'm trying to figure out how ten cents on a hundred pipes can mean more to a millionaire than it does to a newsboy, and I can't see it. We can do more with ten cents than he can with twenty-five. Anyway, we wants it. And we'll strike and re-strike until we got it, won't we, boys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't let's stop no more poor driver and dump over their wagons like we done in Madison Street the other day. I know I was one. You bet you was blink a leading too. Never mind that. Let's not do it no more. Say will we, boys. No, no. Say, you remember that day in Wall Street when the gents threw money to us and told us to buy decent papers? You remember, say, don't you, boys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all right, but say, don't let's hurt no more poor drivers. We won the fight in 1893. We ought to win in 1899. Oughtn't we, boys? Yes, yes. You know me, boys. You bet we do. Well, we'll go out tomorrow and stick together like plaster, and we'll win in a walk. After that impassioned speech, he was awarded with a floral horseshoe for giving the best speech of the night. 
The rally was a huge success. It was covered in multiple papers, and it really got the public behind the newsies. And thanks to Davy and Kids' pleas for nonviolence, the tactics were quickly changed. It seems they felt they no longer even had to act violently since so many of them were on their side. It's pretty amazing. They actually got much of the public to completely stop purchasing copies of The Sun and The World. In another memo from Sites, it says, The people seem to be against us. They are encouraging the boys and tipping them, and they are refraining from buying the papers for fear of having them snatched from their hands. The World and Journal, of course, would not cover any of the events regarding the strike, but thankfully other papers ran articles and made illustrations detailing all of the events. Due to the success of the media coverage of the strike, newsboys from all over the United States began joining in, including Cincinnati, Ohio, Lexington, Kentucky, and Nashville, Tennessee. Seize the day. Open the gates and seize the day. On July 26, 1899, the newsboys gathered once again to begin planning a large parade, with as many as 6,000 newsies marching with accompanied fireworks and a band. The New York Daily Tribune from July 24, 1899, wrote of the Newsboys' meeting, which was being presided by Barney Peanuts, and Senator Sullivan was expected to speak. The Tribune theorizes that this meeting may be a political one, and that the Senator and Barney Peanuts may be meeting to create the United Newsboys Protective Party or the Park Row Association of Affiliated Newsboys Clubs. The article states, The boys expect to have sufficient edibles and other good things to appease their appetites. They say Crazy Arbor has bought 1,500 pretzels for them. The article goes on later explaining what came of this parade idea. The four boys are leaders in the newsboys' strike, and Saturday afternoon they decided that the proper thing was a parade. They accordingly got about 100 newsboys together and had some banners made and started a parade up Park Row, past the offices of the offending papers, and down Frankfurt Street. The police of Oak Street Station were informed of the parade, which made up in noise what it lacked in numbers, and told the leaders that it would have to disband. This they promised to do, and while the police were in sight, they did so. So, unfortunately, due to a lack of permit, the parade was shut down. This next section, the song is King of New York, but I'm also titling it Kid Blank Disgraced. How the King Falls. Look at me, I'm the King of New York. Suddenly, I'm respectable, staring right at your lousy stature. On July 26th, rumors began to spread that the Newsies leaders, Kid Blank and David Simmons, had betrayed the strike and agreed to sell boycotted papers in exchange for a bribe from newspaper executives. The boys, of course, denied these claims, but sources noted that Kid had begun wearing clothes that were a little bit nicer than usual. Either way, Kid Blank and Davey removed themselves from leadership positions in the union, with Davey taking over as treasurer and Kid becoming a walking delegate. Ouch, what a demotion. However, not everyone believed the boys' claims of innocence, and the two former leaders were chased through the street one night. In an article depicting the events, Kid was apparently wearing a new suit, and the boys wanted to ruin it to get back at him for his betrayal. Suddenly, a cop noticed the scuffle, and seeing Kid assumed he was the one starting it and hauled him off to jail. 
He was arraigned at the Center Street Police Court on a charge of disorderly conduct and fined $3. He paid the fine and left the court with his mother. There, a band of newsboys awaited him outside, hooting and hollering when he exited the court building. So here are some possible explanations as to whether or not the guys were actually scabs. So one scenario is that Kid Blank and David Skimmins were scabs, but they saw that people were upset, so they came back to the cause, and the papers reported exactly the truth. Another theory is that Kid Blank and David Simmons scabbed and were not forgiven. The rival papers tried to lighten the damage they knew this would do to the strikers' morale by pretending there was a trial and the two were found innocent. Another theory is that the Time, Sun, Tribune made up a story for a good headline, but I think this is unlikely as it would be against their interests, but it's possible. There were other unfounded rumors spread, as they tend to, among children, and by the time the rumors were proven false, the damage had already been done. Maybe they didn't scab at all. And another theory is that Kid Blank and David Simmons were victims of a whisper campaign by the World and Journal who deliberately planted misinformation among the kids to sabotage their cause. I don't know. I I personally don't blame the scabs. You gotta make money if they're willing to, you know, give you some nicer clothes, a place to stay amongst these really desperate situations. I don't know. Maybe I would cave too. High times, hard times. High times, hard times. So the unification of the group fell apart a bit after the suspicions of Kid and Davy's activities grew. And with that, combined with their failure to get a permit for that parade, the newsboys' morale greatly diminished. There were some others who tried to take new leadership roles, like Mike Cohen, who took over as president, and Racetrack, who took over as vice president, but nothing was like the first time. Most of the boys felt that there was no need for leaders and explained, quote, that when a boy secured a little authority, he was likely to become intoxicated with his power and as a rule could not withstand the overtures of the enemy. And that was from the Evening Telegram on July 28, 1899. On August 1st, 1899, the World and Journal made a compromise that the price would stay at 60 cents per 100 papers, but there would be a new policy where they could sell back their unsold papers. The Newsies accepted this compromise and officially ended the strike, disbanding the union on August 2nd, 1899. After the strike, Kid Blank got a job as a cart driver and later worked as a saloon keeper. I can totally see Kid Blank as a barkeep. There was also a rumor that he worked as the right-hand man for New York mobster Chuck Connors, which also wouldn't surprise me. Unfortunately, he passed away in July of 1913 at the age of 32 due to tuberculosis. The Newsboys strike of 1899 would go on to inspire more like it in the coming years. In 1914, there was a strike in Butte, Montana, and another in the 1920s in Louisville, Kentucky. The strike also left an indelible mark on American life and culture. Unfortunately, young Newsies would continue to struggle in poverty after winning concessions from the World and Journal, and it would take another 20 years for the United States to enact any child labor laws. Until then, the Newsies worked about as hard as they always had. From AllBestInteresting.com, but for one brief, glorious moment, the newsboys of New York City grabbed the world's attention. They went head-to-head with some of the world's richest and most powerful men. And against all odds, this ragtag crowd roared to victory. Also, we can all look to their example today as a measure of the power the worker has in this country. Okay, now let's talk about 
the movie, and Newsies in pop culture. So I didn't know this before, but before the film was made, the Newsboys were first fictionalized in a 1942 DC comic series called Newsboy Legion. It was about a group of orphans living on the streets of Suicide Slum, gross, selling newspapers to make a living. The boys frequently got in trouble with the law, but local police had a soft spot for the boys. Then, of course, in 1992, Kenny Ortega made his film directorial debut with The Newsies, which was released by Disney. The film stars a young Christian Bale who was not aware that the film would involve singing and dancing before he signed on, who stars in the film as Jack Kelly, and David Moscow played Davey, the brains behind the operation. The original music was written by Alan Menken from The Little Mermaid and many other Disney movies that we know and love, and the lyrics were written by Jack Feldman, who wrote Copacabana? I'm sorry, I thought Barry Manilow wrote Copacabana. Other cast members included Anne-Margaret as Mena, Robert Duvall as Pulitzer, and Bill Pullman as Denton. So, like I mentioned, Christian Bale did not know this was going to be a musical, as before it was turned into a musical, it was going to be a dramatic film. It was adapted from Bob Zudiker, I'm sorry if I'm saying his last name wrong, and Noni White's dramatic screenplay inspired by the real events of the strike. But once Kenny Ortega signed on, who many of you may know from his more recent Disney projects like High School Musical and The Descendants, the movie changed quite a bit. Neither David Moscow nor Christian Bale were trained singers or dancers, and David said in an interview celebrating its 30th anniversary, they had to calm both me and Christian down, like, look, we're never going to make you look bad. We have so much rehearsal time. They brought in Madonna's voice coach for us. It was wild. However, after rehearsing for six days a week for eight to ten months, David says you may still notice some clever camera work zooming in close or panning out while the two are performing their dance numbers. It's true. Christian Bale's dance moves in this movie are hysterical. I also learned in this interview that Christian Bale and the female lead, Ellie Keats, who played Sarah Jacobs, had dated during rehearsal, but had broken up by the time they had to film their main scenes together, and she wasn't really speaking to him on set. So I can only imagine how dramatic that was. Overall, the film is amazing when you find out that they had a pretty limited budget and just a couple of cameras. Money was so tight that they had to rewrite the original ending, where they originally wanted to see Jack running off to board the train to Santa Fe, but to avoid spending more money on a train or a day filming at Grand Central Station, they scrapped it, and instead his character off-screen decides to stay in New York with his pals. The boys in the film had a lot of fun making the movie, and there were a lot of pranks involved. Apparently, they would have massive water gun fights around the Universal Studios lot, and you got bonus points if you hit a Disney exec or Ortega. Another time, they filled Ortega's office with newspapers. And those execs all thought that they had a hit on their hands. They even had Minnie and Mickey visit the set. The chairman at Disney, Jeffrey Katzenberg, was particularly interested in the project. The film released on what would have been Pulitzer's 145th birthday on April 10th, 1992, and it bombed. At the time, it was Disney's lowest-grossing live-action film in its history. Max Casella, who played Racetrack, went to the theaters to see the trailer for the movie and remembers some guy in front of him saying, Man, Disney's really gone down the tubes. 
For its opening weekend, the film made $1.2 million against its $15 million budget. Casella said, My publicist called me and it was like he was announcing a death. Also, by the way, I'm still kind of recovering from either allergies or being a little bit sick, and I'm losing my voice a little bit here at the end of the episode, so I apologize if I sound a little bit wonky. But anyways, Alan Menken called Newsies the poor, underprivileged child of the bunch during his renaissance time of composing music for hits like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin in the 90s. Menken said, I found out it won a Razzie Award for the worst song of the year literally backstage when I was in the press room for having received two Oscars for Beauty and the Beast. Can you imagine having won a Razzie and an Oscar all at the same time? For those of you who don't know what the Razzie Awards are, those are given out for the worst categories in film for the year. And that year at the Razzie Awards, Newsy won Worst Song for High Times, Hard Times, which I completely agree with. I can't argue with you there. That's the one I skip every single time. It was also nominated for Worst Supporting Actor and Actress for Anne Margaret and Robert Duvall, Worst Director for Kenny Ortega, and Worst Picture. Upon the film's release on video, though, the reception began to change. Suddenly, people were running to their local blockbuster to rent the Newsies for the weekend to watch as a family, and slowly, it became a cult classic. They eventually made their entire budget back thanks to rental sales. And this is why streaming sucks! Disney may have forgotten Newsies, leaving it to die, but fans kept this little film alive. Suddenly, small theater troops, schools, and summer camps all began transposing their own scripts from the movie to perform. This was done for years until Disney found out and put an end to it. So they created a basic script so that it could be licensed. In 2012, Newsies debuted on Broadway, and baby, it didn't sink, it soared. The musical was nominated for eight Tony Awards and won two its opening year. It ran for two years on Broadway and two years as a national tour with over 1,000 shows, and schools across the country have begun performing it again. There have even been some all-girl casts of the show, which I love. I watched this YouTube video of this all-girl school putting on a production of the Newsies, and it was really cute to see everyone talking about how they were glad to be telling a different side of this story by having an all-female cast, and it was so cool. David Moscow made a comment at the end of that article from 2022 celebrating the 30th anniversary, saying he thinks it's wild that Disney released such a, quote, progressive story about unionizing, as the massive corporation has a history of being anti-union. But the Newsies themselves represented both capitalism's exploitative evils and its buy-your-bootstraps charms. It represented child labor and free speech. Unless you'd seen the film yourself, the article says, you probably wouldn't believe Disney made a movie musical about paperboys unionizing that features a future singing and dancing Batman. Oh, I hope everyone learned something today. If you've never seen the movie The Newsies, I hope that you watch it now that you've listened to this episode and you enjoy it as much as I do. It was so much fun doing the prep for this episode. I'm having a blast this month. And again, I hope you all are enjoying all of these episodes as well. I haven't decided what I want to do next week, so I need to make up my mind ASAP. 
All right, before I say goodbye, one more reminder to please head on over to Patreon if you want to join either the Angry Feminist Book Club or if you want to join the Feminist Faves level by going to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist or going to the link in the bio. Also, if you love me and you love the show and you think others would as well, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoyed the show. And you can also rate the show on Spotify, which I greatly appreciate as well. If you have any episode suggestions, please feel free to email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. If you don't follow the podcast page on Instagram, definitely do so. That's where you'll get all of the latest and greatest. Okay, that's everything I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hi there, this is Amy from the production team at Realm, and I wanted to take a moment to tell you about one of our newest shows, First Street, which is perfect for Shondaland stands and fans of the West Wing. In First Street, four recent law school graduates clerk for the Supreme Court, navigating life and love while confronting the toughest cases of their generation. Tensions are already high as these four very different candidates vie for highly coveted positions. But as they tackle case after case, the clerks realize the court must reckon with an internal threat if justice is to be truly served. First Street was developed by a team of writers and lawyers, and even the great-great-grandson of President Teddy Roosevelt. The show is full of ripped-from-the-headline storytelling and high-stakes cases you won't want to miss. Be sure to listen and subscribe to First Street wherever you get your podcasts, or learn more at realm.fm.